Hello, and welcome to part two of this conversation, The Minnesota Model with Nevada Little Wolf and Brett Grant. Part one of this conversation is in your favorite podcast player from December 19th, 2022. We'd strongly encourage you to listen to part one before coming to listen to part two. Now, come on, let's get uncomfortable. That's so good. You know, you're talking about, and we, we're dealing with this conversation in our schools every day. You know, um, you're teaching whatever, what I would call awareness history. Um, people say you're teaching black history or American Indian history. No, how about we teach some white American history? You know, because this is this, this your history. And so the interesting part that, that I'm hearing you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is there's a piece, the first step of this is acknowledging and seeing and teaching the historical things you're talking about. I mean, where you're from in the Iron Range of Minnesota, you have, we're not even just talking about states, we're talking about nations, right? I mean, we're talking about, there's a whole, a whole sovereign nation that sits in Canada and in northern Minnesota or several. Can you talk a little bit about that intersect as well on, you know, partisan Canada, partisan in the United States and Minnesota and the Dakotas and how that understanding of how the states became helps become the first step to discussing before anybody gets a paycheck, we have to do some acknowledgement first. And Wisconsin. So the, you know, the borders issues, we, you know, like we, we don't think about borders in the same way, but we now have treaties. And so we do have our tribal nations are defined by borders. And I'm a citizen of Leech Lake Nation, which is a part of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, which is, you know, um, six nations. And and then we also have Red Lake, which is not a part of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, and they're um, truly sovereign. So I think those this is just like the Anishinaabe nations and understanding kind of like what are what are the rights and like um, what are the rights under these treaties. And I think that we we've dealt with a lot of things around extraction issues, natural resources, like our hunting and gathering and um, having the ability to to do these things, I mean, and, and still confronted with, you know, conflict and, um, you know, opposition around us being able to just fulfill basic, you know, our basic treaty rights and things that we, that were, we knew were important to us culturally and remain important. And at the time the treaties were signed, I'm sure they were like, that'll be fine. And now it's like, you know, in our current environment there, you know, people are like, well, maybe we shouldn't have given, you know, and they always say we, we gave the natives this thing and they don't realize like, no, you didn't give us anything because we actually had, we had those things. And the, what the treaty did was like, it actually gave you things and we retained rights, right? We, we made decisions to retain rights that we already had. And we put that into the, the treaty document. So I think that like, there's still a lot of things that we have to like, um, that we, we deal with in terms of those things. And then, it also intersects with state law, local law, federal law. There's a lot of federal law that comes into like Indian law. We know that there's federal policy that has been um, 
you know, good for Native people, but also there's been federal policy that's been really terrible for Native people. And one thing, I mean, we often think about is land back. And and so, you know, there even with the reservation boundaries or the tribal nation boundaries, there are just huge pieces of our tribal nations that are gone because of the Federal Allotment Act that created this environment for these additional land grabs within the tribal nation boundaries. So I just think there's more things that people need to understand about this. And I I agree completely with Brett when we started having these conversations. It was such an incredible opportunity, you know, for me to learn more about Dakota people. I really needed to know more about Dakota people coming, you know, moving to Minneapolis from northern Minnesota. I really didn't know a lot about the Dakota history but then also just African-American community of Minnesota as well. Like there were such opportunities and there were more people who came into those community conversations beyond people from, I would say, you know, like the Hmong community, the Latinx community. Um, I think that we just, we saw like a very diverse group of people come together because they also wanted to be a part of this understanding and thinking about what is reparations or what does that mean? I think people who don't know Minnesota and don't know, we'll just say in particular, the Twin Cities Metro, they don't understand, like the, where I live in the country now, there's Latinx folks, there's some Native folks, but there's mostly Black folks and white folks. And this Afro-Latino, you know, in the Twin Cities, oh, you could be Hmong, right? You could be Lao. You could be Native, you could be Native and Black. I have a lot of friends who grew up in the 80s and the 70s in the cities where there was a lot of Native Black folks as well. Um, and that kind of uh, connection, as well as Black is different in the cities because you have a huge Somali population and a huge population um, from Liberia. And so all of these differences there make these really rich community-wide questions that we really need to unpack. Brett, one of the things that, you know, Nevada had me thinking about is the idea, you know, we kind of touched on H.R. 40 that's been sitting out there as federal proposed legislation in the House that is about taking, basically doing what Minnesota's legislation aimed to do, which is to create a commission to just study. It isn't creating reparations. It's, hey, let's start talking about what it would look like if we did this, right? And that's hard enough. But talk a little bit about, because we also have municipalities like um, Asheville, North Carolina, that have passed reparations bills. So talk a little bit about your feelings about state legislation, federal, municipal, um, which is better? Um, or is it a not a zero-sum game and it's yes and? Let's do as much um, potential discussing and commissioning and conversations as possible. Yeah, I... I Definitely inclined to go with the latter of that. Um, I think state, federal, um, local needs, we need to have a discussion about reparations. And I think that a, a good tool would be some of those kind of what they call racial equity impact assessment tools to bring people together. And it's almost like kind of, you know, maybe HR 40 could be a good model because it is, it's designed to study 
proposals. And I remember the, the thing that was good about the, the Minnesota legislation was that there were a series of whereas clauses. So for African-American proposals, um, you had a group that you know were, were formed by some University of Minnesota professors, some community uh, members, some artists who created a series of proposals. So I think one of the one of the historical reference in there was what happened in Duluth, you know, the lynchings in Duluth. And a series of proposals like that on the African-American side, the same with the American Indian proposals. There were, there were a series of whereas clauses that could easily be turned into year-long curricula for schools, for communities to just, as Nevada was sharing, study what, what what's going on and what unique things happen in our communities. So yeah, I mean, it's not either or. It's it's I like the I like the HR 40 model because it studies the proposals. One of the critiques though is that okay, once it studies the proposal, wh what where is the accountability to ensure that these things get passed or how do, how do you implement that? And so I think that needs to be addressed in whatever state, local, federal machine is used or mechanism is used. Well, and there's something about the studying of it. You know, we work higher ed spaces sometimes and everything's about study, doing a study and going to the day. At some point, we got to stop meeting and start doing, right? But there's some healing in this space that goes along. I mean, we don't just put up an apartment complex. We do a study. We do a survey. We figure out what, how will this impact? You know, somehow they decide where that a CVS and a Walgreens and, a, and another drugstore can all be on the same corner, right? That is how market analysis works. So let's study the market. Let's see the impact. Let's see the harm. Let's see the history. And then let's look at proposals and see about what are the lasting impacts in these communities and the pieces, no one should be afraid of that. No one should be afraid of having a conversation about how this is impacted. I think one of the things, uh, Brett, in the Black community that we tend to struggle with, and I'll hear this oftentimes from folks we call old heads. So what are they going to do? They're just going to cut all these people a check? You know, and all this worry that you're going to give the wrong people the money? Well, then they just going to go out and do X, Y, and Z, right? Um, so one of the challenges is we immediately, and I, I can speak for Black folks, we immediately go to this small minority of the Black community, right? Um, I told somebody one day that that Black folks are most the, the most law-abiding people in the country. So what are you talking We get murdered when we supposedly give a fake $10 bill. I mean, how are we not obeying? All we want to do is get home from work and not get killed. So yes, you always have criminals in every community, but there is no gray area in the black community. You follow every bit of the law, whether you agree or you don't, you follow all of it, or you live in this criminal piece, right? And, and, but with especially communities with more privilege, right? There's gray. We don't have a lot of gray. It's either I'm doing everything, y'all just leave me be, right? And so I think the piece that I've heard a lot of people unpack about reparations is, are you going to give it to those Black people? And this comes from ourselves, right? 
You're going to give it to them. They ain't doing nothing. You know, the anti-blackness, white supremacist uh, notion that we have to work twice as hard to get just as far. Man, forget all that, right? So talk a little bit about what you heard from the Black community around these reparations conversations. And then if you were king of reparations and the king of the world, bruh, how would you level this up? What, what would you do, right, if it was up to you um, to not only create the commissions, but create the reparations package for, in particular, the Black community? No, I mean, you're speaking to the Minnesota legislation. We had that happen where, you know, initially we were moving in a direction to have and had serious discussions about whether this reparations bill should even include more than just the African-American community and the American Indian communities in Minnesota. And Nevada mentioned there was talk about including some API Asian Pacific Islander communities, the Latinx community. I even had, I remember being on a panel and talking about reparations and a brother there who is Japanese American talked about the reparations work he mentioned around uh, Japanese Americans and said that he'd be willing to come in and share that story with us. So that was my position. My position was always, let's pursue this in a multicultural, multi-ethnic way. The critique from some of the African-American community in Minnesota was that, no, we, we need to pursue this. Reparations is unique to African-American history. And so we need to pursue this on our own. And this is our issue, basically. And I, under, you know, I understand that, but for me, I just thought, and I think it's getting to that solidarity piece Nevada was talking about. I just think that it's so powerful to show up, especially at a white space like the legislature with multicultural, multi-ethnic solidarity around an issue and to get away from kind of this scarcity mentality that, oh, you know, if if we pursue reparations for African-Americans, there's not going to be any for this group or that group. No, that's not true. You know, and we can show that through through solidarity that there's there's an abundance mentality at work. And so that's my approach, you know, and, and you mentioned it. That's what happened. Well, and you're spot on. I mean, I we did a conversation about... Um, couple weeks ago with a colleague of mine, Jewish brother, Ashkenazi Jew, Zach Ritter, shout out to Zach, who's the VP of um, programming for the Jewish Federation of LA. And he was talking about, he his family has gotten reparations as Holocaust survivors. And he said his mitzvah would requ- requires him to support reparations for others, right? And we talk about the tribes in the village coming together, you know, Again, it's one of those things that people are constant. That is how colonialism and white supremacy works. You know, it is straight Stephen out of Django. Just get us to fight that we're going to lose a little bit. The truth is we're going to get a lot of bit if we do it together, right? Nevada, can you talk a little bit about, because 
obviously COVID-19, we're talking about the legislative session, people's hearings in 2019. We're getting going initially, things didn't pass. And then, you know, Representative Clark retires, right? And so things change a little bit. Talk a little bit about what happened and how can, right? How did the legislators, the elected officials, because I think to Brett's point at the people's hearings where it's the people actually occupying these spaces, but that's the point of being a representative is you represent the people in the first place. But in kind of the conversations that you and I have had in the past, um, it felt like that there was a lot of the elected officials putting it on actual the actual communities to do all the work, right? And while people are already doing a lot of work. So talk a little bit about why things slowed, where things stand now, and um, how do you think things could get reignited if the communities put pressure back on the people who represent them? It's a great question. I think that in 2018, 2019, um, there was the, their leadership was there because we had representative Karen Clark and representative Susan Allen, both in the house working on this. And I'm, I'm not recalling who the counterpart was on the Senate side. Brett probably remembers, um, who was working on the Senate side, but I think that we had like the, the champions at that time were really strong for this. And we came in strong that year um, with the people's hearing and having the community show up. And there was a lot of community organizing that happened. I think through the end of the session, when we were looking to have the legislation and the bill introduced, we were confronted um, with this, this idea that we didn't have enough support for it and that perhaps the tribes had not um gotten to weigh in about it and that until we had something more there, we weren't going to move it forward. They would not move it forward. So I do think it it's like, it, it's a really troubling place because a lot of times we just want to have the conversation. We want to have a space to have the conversation and we need the legislators to be willing to work with us in community to do that, to have the conversation. And so it's really hard when that conversation just gets shut down before we even that is more about a matter of leadership and having the right leaders that you're working with who can understand that, um, you know, like the, the potential that's there. And the fact that, like, I, I mean, I know this because I was at the people's hearing. Um, I talked to people all these years later, you know, now um, it's like. Right. Because that was at the beginning of 2019. I want to be real clear because I, I feel like I'm messing up the years, but it was at the beginning of 2019. So that feels like several years ago now. And there were I mean, people describe it as being one of the most powerful things they've ever experienced at the Capitol. And because it was like person after person, story after story. And the podium was held by community. The table was held by community. The legislators had to sit in the audience and they had to be respectful of the community. And if the community said, you're out of order, you need to sit down or you need to leave, leave these chambers. That's not exactly how it was said. It was a little bit stronger language than that. But it was like, 
if that happens, you know, like we're saying that you need to do that. And I mean, we saw um, legislators that just, you know, they thought they were going to come in there and kind of rule the room and control everyone that was in there. And, and I mean, they, you know, they did, they had to sit down, they had to listen and, um, you know, some of them left. And I think it was, it was really, it was a really interesting and telling and powerful moment, um, at our state Capitol that really, I believe was like, uh, a groundswell around the need for it to have these conversations. And of course, then, you know, in 2020, we had the pandemic, um, we had, um, you know, the murder of George Floyd, the ra- the racial reckoning and uprising in our neighborhoods and communities. And so all of this stuff had been like bubbling beneath the surface here, particularly um, in Minneapolis and in Minnesota for a long time. And it's not surprising to me that we were the epicenter of sort of a, a international global movement around addressing racial issues, right? We absolutely need to have the right people in leadership to to move this type of work forward. We need to have courageous leaders and we have we need to have people who can really understand the work of community members when community members are bringing forward um, these kinds of initiatives, like to really recognize um, that community leadership and honor it. Yeah, that's those are such good descriptions. I think what often happens in leadership, we do this false empowerment. Well, until everybody agrees, until every sovereign, we can go to everybody's house. We need to get the community engaged. Well, you know what that means? I'm going to wait you out so nothing happens. So I don't have to take a stand so I can keep my seat. Because oftentimes we stay elected by doing nothing, right? A lot of nothing. Rather than leading and saying, okay, I heard what everybody said. I'm going to move forward as a leader and do what's in best interest of the people. And if the people don't want me here, I won't win next time. But that's what people run on the first time. I've worked for elected officials and I, my gosh, they run on those ideals the first time. And then after that, you forget. And it's like, I like the cushy gig, even though I don't get paid a lot. I like being called representative or senator. And those things are sometimes challenging. Brett, I know one of the best things that happened as a result of the leadership that you and Nevada put together and you all had in coming together, you know, as two of the key leaders around the organizing, around the legislation, the people's hearings, is that you all started a business, right? That you all decided that maybe the so-called leaders aren't ready. And we have a new soup du jour now. George Floyd gets murdered. We're an epicenter of change. Then we got to shout out Dante. We got to shout out then Amir Locke. All these things happen, you know, in the, the, this, the area in the country that I call the epicenter of change. And so then people start looking to something else and something different. Talk a little bit about Seven Teachings. Um, the company that you and Nevada started together, the mission, the ministry, the work, right? Um, and the true next steps and how you think not only other communities and states can use the Minnesota model, but how maybe Seven Teachings works with other people to um, transform their work and their advocacy. One of the questions that we got working on this legislation in Minnesota that stuck with me 
was from an elder who said, why did or how did you decide to pursue this as a legislative strategy first? And talking about reparations, as opposed to cultural strategy, um, arts, he mentioned arts. And his point was that the legislative strategy, you have to conform in some way to the structures, the processes of the legislature which don't always enable you to have the time and the space to build those deep, sacred processes that, especially with our, you know, the African-American community and the American Indian community are part of just who we are in our communities. And, you know, when, when that, when we finally kind of, the, the legislative strategy dissolved, that stuck with me. Um, and I feel like the work we did in seven teachings was really kind of informed by that, you know, like us saying, well, you know what, we're going to continue this. We're going to focus on who we are to continue this work. That's definitely informed by the, the reparations work we did, but that really kind of is, is grounded in the core of our histories and our cultures you know so seven teachings represents um african-american culture american indian culture coming together to pursue gender justice racial justice um just justice work period but in a way where we, we get to define it and we're always kind of being held accountable to our ancestral practices um, and so I think it gives us, it's liberating in that sense. The, the legislative strategy of the rush to, you know, meet this deadline. If you don't meet this deadline, then your bill won't be heard. You just have so many different things pulling at you. And so to me, that's the important piece is like timing of it. Yes, a legislative strategy is important, but it's not the only way to pursue what, you know, what, what our communities need. Well, and I think one of the beauties of having your own thing is because it's your own thing. So it can be purely for the people, right? Um, one of the things for everyone, we will put um, in the notes from this episode, contact information for Brett in Nevada for seven teachings so you can get in contact, so you can build community with them as well as their organization, um, doing that critical justice work of bringing people together around issues rather than what almost feels like trauma Olympics. Mine is worse than yours, right? When all is bad. Uh, Nevada Little Wolf, Brett Grant, thank you all so much for sharing community with us, for coming together um, and doing landmark work in the state of Minnesota that is really a blueprint for other states and for our nation and for all you do through seven teachings and your daily work and daily practice every day. Thank you all. Thank you. Miigwech, thanks for having us. Get Uncomfortable is produced by me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. Our contact information will be in the show notes for today's episode. One final note before we close out this conversation. Nevada says the word miigwech at the end of this episode. 
Miigwech is Anishinaabe for thank you. As we seek to have a more decolonized world, here at Get Uncomfortable, we think that it's really important to learn the language of the people that came before us. So thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>